0: I cannot swear to you that there is swearing on this show, but there might be. It's the kind of behavior I engage in. It's Tuesday, November 5th, 2019. From Slate is the Gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and it's Election Day. What? Yeah, it is. In half the Commonwealths, in Kentucky and Virginia. The Kentucky governor's race will come down to the unpopularity of the incumbent, Matt Bevins, unless Bevins and his supporters can convince bluegrass voters that he's actually pretty darn good after all. No, come on, that's not their game. It's 2019. He's trying to convince Kentuckians that opponent Andy Bashir. Is slightly worse than him. That's all you could do these days. To that end, they have hit upon an issue, sure to hit home for every Cole family struggling to make ends meet, for every former auto plant worker pouring over the family budget at kitchen tables everywhere. It's, of course, trans teenagers winning all the girl sports.
1: All female athletes want
0: is a fair shot in competition. Andy Bashir supports legislation that would destroy girl sports. He calls it equality. But is it fair? vote against Andy Bashir. He's too extreme for Kentucky. Three problems with that ad, and this tactic one, Andy Bashir doesn't support legislation that would destroy girls sports. The central, I'm um, actually the only claim in this ad, which is run by a non-Kentucky group, the Campaign for American Principles, it's construed out of Bashir's general support for trans rights and his support of other pieces of legislation like trans bathroom bills, which by the way, that group, the American principles people found out doesn't pull that well. So they're off that and on the sports. All right. That's the first problem. The second problem is there is no evidence that an accommodation of trans athletes would, in fact, quote, destroy girls sports. The third thing, the most shameful thing, the thing you really can't get over is that Donald Trump Jr. agrees with this. Today you know, sort of the woke goalpost. they keep moving. The example I use in the book is obviously as it relates to, you know, trans women in sports.
1: Identify how you want. I think it's wonderful. I don't care.
0: When you start saying, okay, I'm a man. I've become a woman. I'm now winning national championships, setting weightlifting world records, you know, displacing women but, but who've really worked their entire lives the to about, get about, to about, a point we, let's, in let's their careers. The, I think that's yeah. wrong. And that's the point. The yeah. yeah. goalposts Inter-
1: never stop
0: moving. Okay. There are three things wrong with Donald Trump Jr.'s argument. One, moving the goalposts. Terrible analogy. If anything, the advocates of allowing teens who were declared male at birth to play girl sports is that they want to keep the goalposts. They don't want to move the goalposts. They just want to let girls who once competed in the boys sports now play the girls sports. Also, there are no girls football teams. No one's objecting to athletes who transition from female to male. I mean, I'm sure somewhere someone is, but it doesn't give them a competitive advantage, so using football is a stupid sport to rest the analogy upon. Two, there are actually no world records in weightlifting that are held by trans women. Mary Gregory is a trans woman who competed in the Masters division, so not the Olympics, for older athletes. And yes, she, she briefly held some world records, and by briefly, I mean two days. And then her titles were stripped when her status was discovered. And three, this is I'll acknowledge this isn't as totally dumb as the trans bathroom bills, which were a pure scare tactic. There was no evidence of any harm ever done by allowing a trans person to use the bathroom of their choice. But it is deeply irresponsible to use this sports question as a condemnation of the woke left or whatever this outside political group might call it. Yes, state bodies, international bodies that govern sports need to think of intentional, systemic, empirically valid ways when deciding how to deal with this issue. And there are ways to do it responsibly and with civility and with science and with care that probably won't make everyone happy, but will get to a fair solution. The Don Jr. slash Matt Bevan way is not that. As an issue, girls, sports, and trans athletes is, in fact, an issue. It's not what I would call, though, a problem. No one should vote on it, that's for sure. And it shouldn't be used as a disqualification of anyone who's thinking about it seriously and carefully, not cruelly and glibly, as these two Republicans are. On the show today, I spiel about Elizabeth Warren and her health care plan What the lesson of Vermont can teach her? Oh, if Vermont only had $52 trillion over 10 years to spend. But first, Blink of an Eye is a documentary about the relationship between NASCAR driver Michael Waltrip, who is a perennial underdog, and Dale Earnhardt Sr., the most iconic driver in NASCAR history. we will be joined by Michael Waltrip and the documentary director, Paul Taublieb. Blink of an Eye is available on iTunes now. And those two gentlemen are on The Gist now. Fewer than 3,000 drivers have ever been behind the wheel of a car in the top tier of a NASCAR race. This is going back to the 1940s. Of the top 10 drivers most races ever run, One's a father and son pair, the Petties, and then there were the brothers, Daryl and Michael Waltrip. Michael Waltrip's first ever win was when Dale Earnhardt Sr., Michael's teammate, the owner of Michael's racing team, died on the track. In fact, died. It can be argued and is argued in a new documentary assuring Michael's first ever win. The new documentary is called Blink of an Eye. It's directed by Paul Taublieb. Hello, Paul. How are you? Hello, hello. And Michael Waltrip's also here. Thanks for coming in, Michael. Yeah, thanks for having us. So I wouldn't even think the word bittersweet would apply because after you found out, and tell me how long it took for you to get word that this monumental influence in your life in the sport of racing had passed away, there could be no sweetness to it, could there?
2: No, I don't like using that either. Yeah. I, I just think it's, um, it's it was a day of tragedy. It began with a great triumph, and it was uh, immediately followed by one of the biggest tragedies in the history of of nascar so it was a it was a difficult day it's been a a bit of a difficult life since then um you know telling the story through a book that i wrote back in 2011 and now with the documentary uh, people say why why do you talk about it well there's a couple of reasons i live it every day whether i talk about it or not and my hope was that in making the documentary i could honor dale and tell everybody what a what a wonderful human being he was and the special things that he did and then also encourage people we're going to have ups and downs uh, highs and lows two of my biggest highs or biggest high and biggest low came within seconds of each other yeah and that's difficult to to handle but you know whether you've lost 462 races and and you you finally win and then have have it followed by that tragedy you just you can't quit you got to keep digging keep trying and life, all everything happens for a reason in my mind. And you just you just learn to, to be a better person as you move forward and see how it all works out in the end.
0: And Paul, what's your connection to racing? Or was it more the humanity of Michael and the situation that brought you to the
1: project? My background is kind of funny. Many, many years ago, I was asked by someone, could I make some videos about NASCAR? And could I go to a race and see about this? And I literally had no idea whether they turned left or right. I didn't know anything (laughs) about it. And I went down to the race and said, there's 200,000 people here. And these guys are going really fast. And this is crazy. And I was from New York. And I had a partner. We went down there. And then we became an official NASCAR video producer for for the company. And I made about 25 videos. So I lived around in that era. And this was 20 years ago. Right Then I moved on to doing other types of movies, more in the action sports, extreme sports area, doing some major feature films. So coming back to this was really kind of wonderful. I had a background. I had an understanding. So it was a combination. And then the story is Shakespearean. You know, what Michael went through, and the one thing that, that I want people, when they see the movie, for someone who winning became an albatross and something he had a struggle with, to achieve and had this friend and Dale Sr. and Michael, I think, and I don't think I've ever even mentioned it to him, he was looking for someone like this in some ways in his life. He, you know, his brother didn't really help him. Richard Petty then helped him, which is a wonderful part of the movie, an icon like that. And then someone who's the most unlikely person, the yeah. meanest, toughest guy, at least on the outside adopts him in a sense. Right. And to give listeners an idea,
0: so Dale Earnhardt Sr., the year he died, was awarded the Fan Favorite Award. And it was the first one, which seemed weird to me because I knew that people loved him. But it turns out he withdrew his name from consideration every year before that.
2: Um, I don't, I don't. I'm sorry.
0: I don't know that story. <laughs>
2: I, I don't know that to be true. But it just I seems thought He it, was the most popular driver. He
0: was lot. the most popular. But there's this fan favorite voting award. And that was the only time he ever won. It. And your brother won a number of years. So the point is that he cultivated his persona as the intimidator. And not only did he cultivate it, it was true, um, on the track, but then he took a liking to you. What did, what do you think he saw in you that made of all the drivers out there say, I'm going to expand my team beyond my son and I'm going to tap you who's never even won a race yet.
2: Yeah, he, um, we were friends for a long time. We, we uh, first encounter on the track was in 1985 in the Southern 500 and, I, late in the race, rookie kid, just making one of his first handful of starts, uh, drifted out of my line into Dale's Way, and instead of wrecking me, he, he dove inside of me and pointed his finger, and I said, oh, no, I really messed up here. And I think the reason why he didn't wreck me was he respected or appreciated the fact that you know, I hadn't just been handed the the keys to the family car. I'd worked my way to NASCAR. Uh, I was running in the Cup Series, and and he, I think he appreciated that. And throughout the 80s, our friendship grew, even to the point where he has a, a Bush team on Saturday, a, a smaller league team, and he let me drive that car a couple times for him. And all throughout the 90s, uh, as our friendship uh, continued to grow, spending more time together, he would always say to me, you would win if you drove for me. Yeah. You come drive on my team and I'll put you in victory lane. And I told him, I said, great. You know, when we're going to do it? I'm ready. <laughs> but it took till 2001 when, when he finally put all the pieces together to expand his, his two-car team to a three-car team. And I was the third driver. And throughout that winter, all during the off season, it was the best time of my life. I had a beautiful new baby girl. The family was fine. I was going to Dale Earnhardt Incorporated, his big shop. And I was listening to Dale talk about how we were going to win races, and you know I didn't care that I was O for four sixty two, and I think that's a great tribute to Dale. I woke up February eighteenth, two thousand one, and I told my wife, I told my family, I told my friends, I said, "They ain't beating me today. It
0: isn't happening. I'm going to win this race." Had you ever gone to the race with that attitude before? You know, I'm
2: sure over the years there had been days when I thought that, and and or I wouldn't line up. I wouldn't think maybe I was the favorite, but I I knew I would have a chance to mm-hmm. win at times throughout my career. But this was different. This was me having to wander off an hour or so before the Daytona 500 to a, to a quiet spot and say, okay, you've got this. Just don't screw it up. Don't be uh, too aggressive early. Just be patient. Let the race come to you. I, I, I had it all the way down to, to, you know, to, to that detail that I was, I was that good. And I was going to be in a position to win the race. And, and with uh, 30 laps to go, there was a huge wreck on the back straightaway And we had to go under a red flag and we stopped on the front straightaway for the red flag while they cleaned up the debris on the back. One, two, three, I was first, Dale Jr. was second and Dale was third. And after the restart, I got to the, to the front and Dale Jr. pushed me and, Dale Sr. was behind Dale, fighting off a swarm of cars. Well, that's
0: the thing that that I wonder about because I read a lot about the event and I knew that you had won that race and that that was the race he had died. But was it well known what Dale Sr.'s tactic was, which was essentially to play interference for his son and his driver, you and Dale Jr.?
2: So in Talladega in 2000, uh, that race was in October, NASCAR implemented new rules. And what it basically did was made the cars more dirtier aerodynamically mm-hmm. so they're they're putting off a bigger wake of air in the back and nascar's goal with those rules were that the cars would run closer together there yes. could be better drafting and better passing and at that race in talladega with about four laps to go four or five laps to go dale was running 18th and he got hooked up with another driver uh, named Kenny Wallace, who got on his bike bumper. And they just, he, Kenny pushed him. Everywhere Dale went, Kenny went with him. And Dale won that damn race. Mm-hmm. And during the off-season, and part of the talk was, with the rules we're going to have for the 2001 Daytona 500, we got to work together. we got to use our team to push each other to the front. And as recently as Friday, before the 500 on Sunday that year, he grabbed me and brought me in his trailer and said, this is this is how it's going to do. Whoever, whoever gets to the front yeah. first, is going to be the guy that leads and I'm going to push and Dale Jr. is going to push or you push if you're in that position. So
0: that was our strategy for the day because of the rules. So what you're saying is the moment that he tapped you was the exact moment when NASCAR had become more of a team sport.
2: Well, for those events, for Daytona and Dalladega, you'd always look for drafting help, Mm -hmm. but he took it to another level. It
0: also seems funny that Dale Jr. in your documentary, Paul, seemed pretty skeptical of his tactic.
2: Well, I was as well. You were,
0: because they'd never
2: really seen it in racing before to that degree. Plus, when when we had that red flag with 30 to go, I look in my mirror and I'm like, damn, this is exactly how he said it would be. Yeah. There he is pushing. Then I'd looked in the mirror and never really had a conversation with Dale Jr. about any of this. Like, it wasn't a big team meeting. I'd looked in the mirror and I thought, I wonder if he told Dell Jr. this plan. <laughs>
0: or, uh, <laughs> it would be is, good to is, know. Is, is he going to be on my team? <laughs> I mean, are we all in this together really or not? Yeah. Now, do you think that there was, in terms of the dynamic, you were friends, but... He was born in 51, you were born in 63, and Dale Jr. was born in 74. So you're right in between father and son in age. Do you think he looked at you as a peer, as a, a younger brother, or a father and son? Maybe a second chance to have a different kind of relationship that he did with his own son, who is in a lot of ways, it seems to have a different mentality between the two Earnharts. Yeah, I don't
2: know about that. I just always thought of him as my friend. Yeah. You know, I would if i had a question or if i needed to know something about if i had a tough decision to make uh, heck, he hecky fixed me up with my my wife who's the the mother of our beautiful child uh, just a just a buddy and uh, i think i think he mainly thought That I'd done a, I was a good driver and I'd done a crappy job of managing my career Right, and he was going to take that role over. And so obviously winning the Daytona 500 and getting that trophy, that was something that was so special to me. But I tell you, during the off season, I was thinking about how cool it would be when I didn't win to have Dale on my side to say, okay, here's where you screwed that up. And this is how we're going to do this. And this is what the car needs in order for you to be able to have that, that, uh, have success. And so my favorite thing, as I think about looking forward to the O one season was, was the post-race meetings, Mm -hmm. being able to to set with him and listen and learn and and be a better racer. And unfortunately we, we never had, never had one of those. And, um, just to, just to, to think, I just, I look back and wonder what might've been.
0: What does it feel like to go f- 0 for 462 a psychologically? But B, could you give me a sense of the economics of it? Is it like golf, like if you finish 3rd, it's still pretty good prize money? Yeah.
2: This is the deal on that. When I started, I just didn't have a car that was capable of winning. Mm-hmm. And then so that's a couple of years. Then we get our cars better and we we get close to winning. And you know, you race a Saturday race and you beat everybody. You you win win one of those. The same guys that. Some of the same guys that went on Sunday are in that race Mm -hmm. or think about this. You finish second a few times and you you beat everybody, but one guy, right? I'm going to, I'm going to get there. I was determined I was going to get there and I did not, that did not beat it out of me getting, having
0: those losses. I, I was certain that it was going to work out one day. The way you presented the the cavalcade of, I guess, losses or non wins,
1: like a lap counter, uh, visually was was well done. By the way. way, you know, when we were looking at that four sixty two, I had to try to find a dramatic way to do it without spending the same beat fifty times or hundred times right. or four hundred times. So we came up with this montage idea, and. We we tried to show the frustration and how close he was and second place and wrecks and unfortunate things that happened. Um, but I really felt the story was more about Michael and his relationship, that it was about him and Dale and fate and not giving up. Mm-hmm. I was a little worried at the beginning. Here's a real life guy, very articulate. He'd written a book. He had a vision of his life. Was he going to try to say, well, I want to shape history? Yeah, But he didn't. I mean, he had great comments, things that didn't work, technical and structural. So it was really not just a relief, but it was a joy to work with a subject who also at times said, well... I guess you kind of know what you're doing, so I'll trust you, but this really bothers me or this person.
2: I, I don't think I really argued with Paul about anything. There was a few things that I I, I didn't argue with him, but I just said that ain't going in there.
0: Uh-huh. And there was some things. So it was no argument because no, you won it. No, that's, there <laughs> like was What it. was one in general? Just a
2: couple of pictures of, of moments that I didn't think were uh-huh. appropriate or, or just a, a, a something that – you know, didn't fit into the timeline, just minor oh, see, things. Yeah. So anything that had to do with structure or or creativity, the reason being is when I wrote the book back in 2011, I wrote it with a gentleman named Ellis Hennigan. I would, I would tell him stories and he would write them down Yeah. and then he'd say, I don't know where it goes yet. We'll fit it in somewhere. He, he did a really good job of that. And he would hand me back the chapter. He says, this is what we talked about last week. What mm-hmm. do you think? And I would read it and I'm like, I didn't say that, and he said, "Yes, you did. I, I I recorded it. That's where I got this from." I said, "Well, that's not what I meant." Oh, okay, and I would take his chapter of nicely printed paper with typed words on it, and in the margins, I would add and take away and write it in my with with an ink pen, write it the way I would say it and at first it was really getting on his nerves but then after a while he's like yeah I, I kind of see this and if you read the book it sounds like you're talking to me and I wanted the documentary to be exactly the same way now obviously I couldn't control what Dell Jr would say or Mike Kelton or or uh, Richard Petty but what meant a lot to me was that all of those individuals that I think mattered in the in the story for the documentary they they were all a part of it and I, I really appreciated I couldn't have had this documentary if Dell Jr. said, I can't do it. Right. That wouldn't have made any sense. And the fact that he did it and all the people that we thought were important to the story and the time were were in it with with us, uh, that meant the world to me.
0: Paul Taublieb is the director of Blink of an Eye. Michael Waltrip is front and center. And uh, check out this documentary about the worst day of the best day of someone's life. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank Thank you. you. Blink of an Eye is available right now on iTunes. And now the spiel. Part of a policy proposal being a good idea or a bad idea is if people support it. Duh, you're saying, but I'm here to say no duh. You want to go through this a little bit? Okay, duh, no duh. Duh, no duh. Anyway, I actually mean something a little different from... The very plain fact that an idea that's unsupported will be very hard to pass or even the fact that an unsupported idea will imperil the very election of the candidate who's championing it, which brings me to Elizabeth Warren in health care. She obviously thinks that $52 trillion in spending over 10 years is a good idea because it will lead to a better health care system for more Americans and that it's worth the risk of passage and also the risk of friction along the way. She could very well be right if we lived in Norway, New Zealand, or Canada, a place where the populace was more or less ready to put up with the uncertainty and the pain. Yes, a little bit of pain, a little anxiety, if everyone were basically all pulling on the same side of the rope in this tug of war. The irony is New Zealand, Canada, and Scandinavian countries are pretty functional when it comes to healthcare, very functional, so they don't need to all get on board and do the heavy lifting of making this dream possible. And this dream, to be clear, is the would be the most ambitious government run healthcare system in the world. What troubles me is that Warren, and not so much Warren, but her most vocal backers, act as if critics of the plan, or even those with questions of the plan, are liars, or cowards, or sexist, or acting in bad faith, or some other combination of traits that all add up to disqualification for even commenting on the plan. All these reasons why we shouldn't listen to the critics who don't get it, who are putting up smoke screens, or, this is the big one who are not daring to think big, to think bigger than they even think they can think. When someone doesn't agree with your big plan, they're not daring to think big. But when you don't agree with someone else's big plan, you're being cautious, prudent, risk averse, maybe even sane, a little sane. I like sanity. If Warren's plan, which would mean a doubling of the deficit, yes, even with personal expenses going down, if it were popular, I would say let's go for it. I would say let's double the deficit and trust that people have bought in and will look at their own savings and look at their tax bill and say, because they don't hate it and they're not blinded by hatred or worry, and they will say, yes, this is worth it. This is worth my taxes going up. But I live in America. I see how things work. I see how they don't work even when they really do work. Elizabeth Warren is acting as if our system isn't riven by polarization, acting as if our system is one where voters put aside their politics when it comes to a clear-eyed assessment of their pocketbook. But every bit of evidence contradicts that idea of America. From the day before Election Day to a couple months after Election Day, the American economy did not change. But Americans' opinion of the economy absolutely flipped. In one state, a swing state, in Wisconsin, GOP voters were asked in October, a couple weeks before the election, whether the economy had gotten better or worse over the past year. And they said worse by a margin of 28 points. They were asked the same question after Trump won, and they said better by a margin of 54 points. Not the outlook the actual economy, an 82 percentage point swing. And it's not just Republicans. So Michigan, another pretty important state. They do the Consumer Expectations Index. Uh, this is not just the state, this is the country, right? So Republicans, their number was 61.1 a month before the 2016 election. That is depths of a recession numbers. We're, we're out way out of the recession by then, right? Republicans were saying 61.1. Democrats were at 95.4 which is pretty close to the highest it was when Bill Clinton was in office, okay? A couple months after that, Republicans' expectations were at 122.5, which is as crazy high as it can be. And the Democrats were lower than the Republicans had been in October. It all adds up to the idea. What I'm trying to say with this is that there are lots of people in America are, who are just destined, it's just by by now in their DNA, or at least wired into their thinking, that they are going to hate the Elizabeth Warren health care plan. Okay, you say that's fine. A lot of people hated Obamacare. It was still good for them. But Obamacare was passed with at least the notional idea of reaching out to those people and not telling them they're wrong and they're idiots, but telling them, give it time, please give it patience. We understand. We tried to get your people on board. But it's not just the Republicans who are against the Elizabeth Warren plan. It's also moderate Democrats who are really scared of the plan. It's also center-right Democrats and some center-left Democrats. So Elizabeth Warren wants to double government spending based on a plan that everyone's totally into except Republicans, the center right, the center and the center left. I, I mean, let's just hope it's a brilliant, unmistakable success immediately right out of the gate when we've just demonstrated that in America, there is no such thing as an unmistakable success. I think now of former Vermont governor, Peter Shumlin. He, by the way, he supports Bernie and Warren's plan. He tried to adopt Bernie's plan in his little laboratory of democracy, Vermont, which is Bernie's also. It did not go well. He went to
3: Harvard and he shared some lessons learned. To move from a premium driven system to a tax based system, you're going to have to have an 11.5% payroll tax. You're going to have to have a a top 9.5% income tax on top of our current state income tax. I don't think that was even the biggest problem. The biggest problem was legislators are quietly saying to me, hey, Governor, right now you have costs for the last 20 years that have gone up in health care 7 or 8% on average a year for over 20 years. Are you telling us that we're going to have to raise taxes 7 or 8% every year? And I couldn't with a straight face turn to them and say, no, we've got this figured out. There's going to be so much cost containment immediately, you won't have to do that.
0: But that is what Elizabeth Warren is saying with a straight face and realize that the politicians asking the governor these questions in Vermont were politicians from Vermont. Not Ted Cruz, Mike Lee, Mitch McConnell and name your fourth horseman of the sick apocalypse. Shumlin, who I guess wasn't consulted or listened to in any way, said that politics sank him. And I think Elizabeth Warren is acting as if politics, any politics at all, just don't exist. And if they exist, there's something to be rebutted rather than acknowledged. But Shumlin had to deal with politics and a public. And remember, they were Vermont politics, and the public was comprised entirely of
3: people from Vermont. It's very tough to make the sale to legislators and to constituents, hey... This is a great thing. You're finally going to have healthcare as a right, not a privilege, but you're going to have tax rates that are quite high, replacing premiums. So it's not money you're not spending now, but there's winners and losers.
0: I don't think Elizabeth Warren and her defenders, more her defenders than her, are trying to make the sale. I think she's appealing directly to the section of the electorate that already agrees with her, which is fine. It's called playing to your base. Maybe you want to grow your base with passion, try to win them over intellectually. What I think is happening is that her surrogates, at least, are blaming and shaming anyone who's skeptical. What's the point of not thinking big? Actually, she said that, not the surrogates. I'm also especially worried that lots of her loudest defenders of this plan scoff, absolutely scoff at any concern for the legitimacy of a too high deficit being a thing that you should be worried about. That has become an absolute punchline on the left, akin to fretting about Y2K, that there is any such thing as a deficit that's too big. I do wonder, I think back to Shumlin, and I wonder if his talk, which was titled, In Pursuit of a Single-Payer Plan, Lessons Learned, I wonder if anyone learned any lessons. I do think Governor Shumlin might have also given a warning, which will go unheeded, a prediction of how the Warren plan might play out if Warren is
3: actually able to get elected. Most politicians who had a political career would have gone out and said, we've done the research, here it is, this is what it would cost, this is how we should do it. I believe in single payer, legislature go pass it. Mm -hmm. And it would have died in a legislature quickly and the governor would have said, those legislators are so incompetent, they've got no guts, why can't they pass single payers the right thing to do? (laughs) Mm -hmm. This is Bernie Sanders state, why aren't we doing this? Mm -hmm.
0: Well, maybe that's destined to be the future of the plan. Or maybe, I'll acknowledge, maybe I'm wrong. And that the momentum that sweeps Warren into office sweeps away any legislator who'd raise an eyebrow or an issue or a concern or a piece of legislation. And that all Americans will be on board, on the same page. And that the opposition will simply melt away like a tumor that shrinks and withers on its own. Maybe. But I tend to think if you believe that, well... Then I have a healthcare plan to sell you. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Daniel Schrader, more of a Cal Yarborough Jr. Johnson Fireball Roberts fan. Just was also produced by Christina DeJosa. She's not buying Donald Trump Jr.'s goalpost moving concerns on the issue of family trusts, improper email storage, whether there was a quid pro quo, or nepotism in general the gist. You know, between Bobby Allison, Bobby Isaac, and Bobby Labani, why do you need any other favorite NASCAR driver? Just stick with the Bobbies, I say. And thanks for listening.